Again, free thinkers, welcome back to the Free Thought Project podcast. My name is Jason Bassler, and joining me is the Free Thought Project editor in chief, Matt Agarist. Well, as of last month, it has now been five years that we've been doing the Free Thought Project podcast, guys. And in all that time, there isn't a single interview that we've done that I didn't enjoy and glean some knowledge or perspective from. Now, of course, that is intentional, as we always strive to keep our guest list quality extremely high, but today I'm even more excited than usual. Our guest today is Jessica Solche, who just released her documentary film about the wild world of 3D printed guns, the legal hurdles that accompany it, and the extremely active community surrounding it. Now, this is a topic that is fascinating to me because it subverts the conventional avenues of politics and renders an object both literally and figuratively that pushes the levers of authoritarianism on its heels in fright and in dismay. A 3D printed gun is an extremely revolutionary modern concept that destroys the boundaries of law and by its very nature manifests freedom. So Jessica is here today to talk not only about her film and the community, but about the focal point of the film, which is a man named Cody Wilson, who is quite an interesting figure himself. And I guarantee this conversation will inspire our free thinking community to its fullest potential. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Here it is, our conversation with the documentary filmmaker and director of Death Athletic, Jessica Solche. Hello, Jessica, and welcome to the show. I'm thrilled we could have you on and make it work with our schedules because this interview we're doing today comes just a couple weeks after your new documentary film. You directed Death Athletic, uh, which was released and debuted on October 21st. Um, Now, Matt and myself watched it this week, and it was fascinating. Uh, Certainly a very interesting exploration into the 3D printed firearm subculture And uh, of course, I should probably note that I am a bit biased about this topic because it's a topic that's interested me quite a bit over the years. And of course, you know, Cody is a a very wonderful speaker. He's extremely uh, intelligent and is a bit of an enigma himself, which uh, seems to be a a very effective marketing strategy for the movement. But before our conversation today, I shared on social media that we would be interviewing you and I asked anyone... Uh, if they had seen it, I, I kind of just put out a broad question there to the audience asking if they had seen it. And uh, of course, there was nothing but praise and accolades. And uh, obviously, much to your credit, when I first sat down and watched it, the first thing I noticed was that some of the footage that you used in the film was from 2015. And uh, you know, considering the, the Liberator launched in 2013, 
it looks like you were documenting the, the evolution of this whole process of 3D printed firearms from nearly the beginning. So uh, with that said, when did you start this project and why and what was the intention behind it? Hi, um, thank you for having me on. So yes, I've been around in this niche community for quite a while. Um, this is actually my second feature documentary film. My first feature um, was called No Control. And um, Cody is actually in that. And that began in 2013 and came out in 2015. Um, I fell into the subject of gun control as we were all um, collectively in the United States pushed into the debate via Sandy Hook. Mm. Um, and during that time, I just fell into making my first documentary film, which this will, this pertains to Death Athletic. Um, and in that film, it really asks about the efficacy of gun control. And there's two main characters, um, an artist um, that was on the anti-gun or pro-control side and Cody Wilson, which when I started documenting the artist's work, he on camera actually tells me about Cody, which was a beautiful moment to capture um, story-wise. So I have known Cody and filmed him since 2013. After that film, after No Control came out, um, obviously, I mean, seems like you both know Cody well and perhaps your audience does He's extremely charismatic, intelligent, and concise in his, not only motivations, but in his words. And that makes for a powerful, you know, type of figurehead for a movement, right? Yeah. So in 2015, after that film was done, I kind of was just like, you know, Cody, I'm just going to continue following you. I think I, um, during the process, both films were motivated by this um, distaste for how all media just every time they had a topic, you know, you take two or three minutes, it comes with a bias. Uh, it, nothing was very, um, uh, it, it's not, it's very surface, right? Sure. So um, I wanted to just really see where his story was going to go, see where all the lawsuits would go really dig into as much as possible um, the ethics and motivations, um, discover, you know, or demonstrate whatever would happen, uh, why it is important to understand what he's doing in the form of ethics and moral, because that definitely was not something allowed or being discussed in any other, you know, journalistic um, summary. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so filming began for Death Athletic in 2015. And the very last time I filmed was January of 2022. It was a long process. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no kidding. That was one of the main things that stood out about the film is that it took seven years to film that. Like that's that's some serious dedication. And and you got and you did like a fantastic job. I want to say that before we get too far into all this. You know, like this was it was riveting the interviews that you decided to run with. I mean, I don't know how much footage you cut that down from, but uh, you know, I guess it's not hard to find like amazing footage of Cody speaking. Cause he's a very <laughs> articulate and well-spoken dude. And 
Um, and what he says is just it's, it's awesome. But yeah, seven years. That's what's it like to do a doc to, to work on something for seven years? Just one thing, right? That's one thing. I mean, yes, it's been wild. I mean, the only way to correctly assess it is that it became an obsession, um, which perhaps all good films um, are because the person has, you know, you have to go through so much to get a project out. It's not easy to get a film done. Sure. So my obsessive levels of loving this topic um, and what was happening helps me through it. But there was definitely many, many, many times along the way where I had to be like, I, this is nuts. <laughs> yeah, will, there were a bunch of those, I bet. <laughs> yeah, will this film ever come out? This is not going to be allowed. <laughs> I started to get restless after seven hours of working on content. I couldn't imagine seven years. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's a, uh, it's certainly uh, worth it, though, and it seems to all paid off. And I love that explanation that you gave about the intention behind it, because uh, it seems like we're kind of being split into two different groups right now in society. Right. Like there's the normie class who's out there who, uh, yeah, just kind of picks up on the new sound bites, you know, the, the quick like two minute quips or whatever. But now it seems to be kind of like this emerging uh, audience that's grown from like the Joe Rogan experience podcast that they want. They have this deep desire for. Uh, longer content for these deeper dives to really sink your your teeth into a certain topic. And uh, I think those are kind of the people that this this particular piece of content, this documentary is going to resonate with. And, uh, and especially because it, it focuses on the ethics and morals. And I know it doesn't seem like a very mainstream topic, but it's starting to become uh, just starting to now see kind of the beginning phases of those things becoming a lot more focus on it, especially with, you know, these forever wars, these constant wars are happening. I mean, right now, Israel, Palestine yeah. and stuff. So a lot more people are starting to kind of tune in, which is a great thing. But, you know, while I was researching this film, I stumbled across a video on the YouTube, uh, on YouTube uploaded by Defense Distributed of a speech that Cody made entitled the same name as your film, yeah. Death, Death Athletic. And um, in the comment section of that video, I think one of the top comments was, you know, he makes me feel way under red. <laughs> and I, I certainly agree. Uh, it wasn't easy to follow each and every point that Cody was making in that speech. I'll certainly have to watch it a few more times to absorb everything that Cody conveyed. Um, but I kind of have an idea of, you know, what his intention was behind the, the, the name Death Athletic. But one of the questions we had from our audience and one of the questions I wanted to ask you myself was, what does the film's title Death Athletic mean to you? Yes, of course. So let me give you a little information about that title as well. Death Athletic comes from um, Peter Sloterdijk, a German philosopher. It's, actu it's actually that he talks about death athletes. And in his framework, it's um, specifically religious so he's speaking about, you know, martyrs, people like Jesus, people who, as he puts it, um, is able to overcome the tyranny of death and emancipate themselves and therefore able, able to fulfill their uh, destiny, if you will, which is mm -hmm. specifically death in those cases. Um, we, because I had to do so much reading to do this film, to kind of catch up with everything that um, motivated Cody. And as you know, he speaks in terms of philosophy and such. This book was read by all of us in like 2015. And I think it hit 
um, very strongly then um, and resonated till he did that speech, I believe in 2020. And I decided to retitle this film and why I thought specifically to me, like I want to kind of modernize the term um, because anyone today who's doing anything that is um, considered, uh, you know, misinformation or incorrect in polite society or will get you in trouble on Twitter or social, you know, any social media or culturally or, you know, all these things. People like Assange, people like Ulbricht, um, Aaron Schwartz, who literally fulfilled a actual death athleticism, sadly. Yeah. Um, they have to be somewhat death athletic. They have to understand that, that what they're doing is a, a confrontation that could potentially cost their lives. Being in prison, I would say you, you know, your life is lost. Um, Jay Stark in some ways also well, absolutely fits those terms, right? Um, so death athleticism in terms of this film is kind of almost like a, a positive slogan of affirmation, if you will. To become death athletic is to have such a strong sense of moral and ethics that you fulfill your fate. That just gave me the goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. And, and uh, you could you documented Cody's struggle with that from the beginning to the end. And I remember in the beginning he was um, kind of freaked out. You know, he's like, these people are breathing down my neck. You know, you know, you don't know what it's like to have the government with a target on your back and everything. And uh, Jason and I both like we when we watched it, we both kind of came to that same conclusion that we the Free Thought Project was targeted by the US government and you know subsequently shut down censored into oblivion and um so we had a little bit of the same understanding i mean cody's case went f much further than anything the free thought experience you know we weren't um you know we weren't in court with anybody like that but um but like one of the main things that stood out to me in um in the documentary you had covered like different political politicians speaking out about it and media coverage. And it, it, it wasn't just like the anti-freedom rhetoric that they were putting out. They were just, <laughs> it was like, you know, they were obviously they were all against the right of people to protect themselves, but they were like, they were straight up lying. Like all these politicians and all the media, like they, they kept, you know, putting out all this fake shit. And, and that's what Cody mentioned in the, uh, in the documentary several times was like, these headlines aren't even, you know, they're not even true. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I wanted to know, like, how that progressed. Like, so you, you know, mm -hmm. he's obviously dealing with censorship in the beginning on the, the, of the documentary when you started this. But you know, everybody knows that you know once Trump came into office, the censorship and everything else started ramping up big time. Mm -hmm. So you were there in the thick of this, and now we're like kind of at like peak fucking censorship. How did that progress over the seven years? Did you notice like the the iron fist of media and and social media uh like just gripping you guys did you were you ever worried that this may never even be allowed to be published you know it, it crossed my mind a ton of times mostly because people were telling me this but um i don't know i've remained autistically unable to incorporate that into my 
into my daily life just because I've been so obsessed with this. It's like it has to come out in some form. Right. <laughs> I, I can't, I haven't been able to, um, and still uh, it doesn't, it really just doesn't affect me or I, I just don't think about it. But um, definitely, I mean, the discussions of censorship uh, have evolved and was foretold between, I mean, I've had so many just off camera discussions as well with Cody in 2013 and 14 and 15 with Ben Denio as well. Lots of discussions with Benjamin Denio with which most people don't know, but he's the person who came up with the idea of creating um, like he just had the pen on paper idea like, Hey Cody, what if we did this? And then Cody was like, yeah, let's do it. And he took off with it. Right. So Benjamin Denio is someone that you meet in the film. Um, so I, I personally, I don't know. I just can't waste my time in the fear of it, but it is possible. It remains possible, especially like I just realized today, my films on YouTube and YouTube is like not only notorious, but it's constantly cracking down right now. Just everything. Right. Simply mentioning this uh, defense distributed, right. That, that was, yeah. that was a ban hammer immediately. Yeah. So I had a good laugh this morning when I saw my film up there. Um, <laughs> but like, so Oddly enough, we had been talking about so many things that are currently happening in today's uh, society um, because, I don't know, it was just like, this is coming and it sounded crazy and it did come. Everything, everything that's happening, like even, even COVID, not that that was uh, even a mental possibility, but once it's happened, we realized it was like maybe... Uh, always foretold, you know, this moment of the government even attempting such an overreach is, was a dream, right? Uh, a test. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's always been there, but at the same time, I, I, I've been trying to be very white-pilled about it too at this moment, because I feel like so many people are building systems to get around everything. And we're, as Americans, we're just so loud and unable to like hold back our detail, our distaste and it's very different than anywhere else in the world in the specific terms of like um complaining but in a in an aggressive sense that causes someone to create something you know what i mean um that i can only see you know every everyone's like oh the empire is ending and you know perhaps it is but the war Oh, we are in war right now across the world, but there's another war front and that's the internet, right? Yeah. And so many people are building on the internet that we just have to stay loud and active. Absolutely. Uh, well said. And um, I feel like I, I watched uh, a bit of the Michael Malice interview that both yourself and Cody did, and you guys did hit a little bit of um, some censorship when it came to the movie posters. And we could get into that. Uh, yeah. We could get into that. I have actually, I have a question regarding that, but I, I kind of wanted to expand and, and touch on what Matt just uh, brought up as well about uh, some of the parallels uh, to our story with Cody's, because I think it was like around halfway point of the documentary. Uh, Cody had invested years into the legal case and he felt like the, the feds were dragging their feet and intentionally toying with them. And, intentionally impeding his life's work. And he kind of shared, uh, you know, passionately his mental and emotional stress uh, that the mm -hmm. highs and lows take on him. And I, I think, yeah, both Matt and myself could really identify with that segment of the film. Um, 
and the, being acclimated to the dread humiliation part. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's exactly yeah, what he was talking. Like it was Jason and I both were like, Oh my God. It's like, he's describing our experience. Right. Perfectly right there. I'm sure that our audience is tired of hearing me bitch about this, but just for context, you know, we were targeted by a government associated think tanks and big tech and were deplatformed several years ago, it resulted in a loss of nearly 6 million fans. Um, so it was, oh, it was pretty devastating as you can imagine. I can relate because like that rug being pulled out from you, you know, and like the trajectory of your own life kind of being out of your control. I mean, it, it is hard to deal with. And uh, Cody himself said in the film that confidence is a man with options. So I was, <laughs> I was curious, like how much of that doom and gloom did you sense spending time around him during that time? And what was it? What was its ultimate effect? Was it demoralizing or did it just fuel and inspire new paths to explore? Um, so uh, how to Cody's story in general, his work story, his life story right now has tons of ups and downs. It's a constant up and down. So at one point I did as a person understand that this was part of how he, I guess, internalized and moved through obstacles um, by understanding the gravity of what was happening. Um, that does not take away in, in understanding how, how much gravity was happening and how quote unquote dangerous to his company and his business and his ideas and where he was trying to take things to this day. Right. It's such a, um, a roller coaster of, you know, accomplishing something and then a new lawsuit hits or the government, you know, sends out a new um, um, bill regulation, it is a constant up and down. So demoralizing, I think, you know, it, it can't be not to him because like he says in the film, like how is it possible that a tiny company survives against all of this? I mean, it is amazing that he actually has survived for 10 years. Um, and that is totally, you know, because he's just so incredibly determined and constantly creating options for himself, constantly trying to think out of the box, build new things. He's an excellent marketer, all these bits and pieces. Um, I never felt true demoralization, probably true, true demoralization until 2018 because everything that happened then really did send things into a spiral. Um, the rest of it at one point just became how Cody must live his life in the terms that he's created for himself, which is not fun. No, clearly. And I wanted to ask you about that too in 2018. Like, um, obviously that was a complete derailment. You know, no one saw that coming. We didn't know what to expect whenever we saw that. We're like, man, they have to be targeting him. And it almost was targeted, you know. Um, I mean, like, just the, the way that they reacted to it. Because as the attorney for Cody said during the, during his trial, um, if he'd have been in 20 of the other states uh, where the, um, what do they call it, the complaining witness yeah. um, knowingly faked their age then he wouldn't even have gone to trial right mm -hmm. like they, it was he would there would have been no crime and um so yeah uh 
I wanted to know that I want to get your perspective on that. Like it looked, you know, when, when they had to hold that press conference and then Cody had to resign from DD and, and, and all that, it was almost as if like everything was the government got what they wanted and it was done, you know, but it like they, they, they can't like resiliency is, is an understatement to what happened during that time. And I wanted to get your perspective from, you know, from an outsider, not, not being part of DD, but, but watching this unfold, first off, what did you think was going to happen? How did you think it was going to play off? And or and what were your initial thoughts when this happened and then Cody's in Indonesia and all this shit playing out at, at one time? Well, I'll start with that. If you intend to be a death athlete, really, really run a tight ship. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. there's no way around it. Because I think the government often wins just because somebody slips up. Right. Yeah. So starting with that, um, it was, it was definitely, uh, as a filmmaker, an extremely tough moment because I mean, there's no way that somebody can follow someone for so long and not become completely, uh, entwined in everything that's happening day to day. So, um, when the news hit, this was a, very personal moment as well, because you can't help but think everything, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the unknown is what eats you the worst, right? Sure. So, um, and also as a filmmaker, through the process of following him through that part of his life and getting into the courtroom and, you know, you feel a bit like a, like a vulture and I hadn't had to deal with that as a filmmaker yet. Hmm. Um, because I also wanted to <laughs> give him space, but I also had to finish a film and do the right thing and follow this to wherever it would lead me, um, information wise. So that was a really, of all the times of this film, that 2018 to 2020 kind of moment was definitely, uh, a really rough time. Um, and then as it was a very important time for him to pull out um, just professionally from DD. So because they're coming after him for criminal charges, they wouldn't want that to touch his companies Mm -hmm. and businesses. So that's why that handover was very important and smart, um, et cetera. So I think that was the question. Yeah. I mean, the way that you guys wrapped it up and Cody did that interview with you on the boat and, and explained it all, um, I think the public really needs to see that. And anybody who hasn't uh, watched this documentary and you're curious about Cody's case and all that stuff that happened in 2018, go get his perspective in the movie when they're when they do the post uh, court or post sentencing interview on that on that boat. It's uh it's honest and it's incredible. It's really good. I, I, I it informed me of a lot uh, a lot of different things. And Cody actually he explained everything to us, but. That was just so much more in depth. We didn't get into it very deeply like that, but it was a uh, really well done. Thank you. Yeah, it, Thank you. it felt like it was the, at least from my knowledge, the kind of the first time that Cody's really ever explained the whole situation. And I know we're kind of intentionally being vague about it because it's it's a bit of a sensitive topic, at least regarding like his character and uh, I guess his reputation. But um, I, I did appreciate that the the film kind of left the door open to possible. Uh, I guess the, the possibility of targeting I kind of, I think all of us in the community had 
whiffs of this being something that was intentionally targeted somehow. Uh, and obviously, I don't know how that would all work out as far as all like the <laughs> the logistics and parameters and everything. But I, mean, I, I don't I don't believe it was a target whatsoever. And I, that's interesting that you saw that in the film. And um, fine, that's great. But uh, uh, what what you learned also watching the film and what we learn as she's, you know, I wish her the best. And uh, she has a long, beautiful life ahead of her. I am sure of it. But, you know, uh, the reason Cody is not in jail and perhaps the only reason he's not in jail is because, well, they couldn't find anything that specifically was an age, uh, you know, discussion. Um, but also uh, her history. Right, um, right. Had yeah. years before it. Which you, yeah, covered um, in the document. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of, lot of information that's not in the film. There can only be so much. And I don't, I have no interest in making her look like a bad person. Sure. I, I feel like she, she's a young girl. Um making bad decisions, but that doesn't mean that she can't understand responsibility at some point in her life, especially after years of playing old and playing adult. Right. Um, I don't think it was a, uh, a situation of a honeypot whatsoever. Right. Um, but like I said at the beginning, if uh, you have a target on your back and you decide to do silly things, um, you might hand yourself over. Sure. Well, I appreciate that perspective. I guess my point was just the community kind of suspected something and it was mm. not really much of an explanation. It was kind of like this open and shut case and like nobody really understood what was happening. And so, you know, uh, people like us asking questions, sure. it only made sense to ask, you know, well, was this some kind of potential honeypot setup kind of situation? But oh, this certainly yeah. adds perspective and it actually uh, leads, leads to my my next question because... Uh, I mentioned in the opening of this conversation, you know, obviously I'm a bit of a, a Cody Wilson fanboy, but it seems like Cody did mention, and I think this was during the, I'm trying to remember, I think it was during the Malice interview. Uh, Cody did mention that you were incredibly objective during the making of your film. And he hadn't really been around many filmmakers who dedicated themselves to that level of uh, objectiveness, uh, objective filmmaking. And usually there's some type of slant or certain ideological perspective um, so I was wondering, you know, can you give us a few examples of why he may have said that, uh, such as his arrest? You know, I mean, I I'd only imagine that that was part of it. Like you felt like you had to give the viewer the full story, even though it could have damaged Cody's perception and in turn your documentary about the entire movement. Huh. I mean, I'm just not integrating myself, I think, into this film or the prior film. And I think he says that because obviously in, since he was in my first film um, and I said, I wasn't going to put bias on there and I didn't, right. That's uh, likely. And I mean, obviously why he agreed to continue, let me filming, right. Um, to let someone into your life for so long um, is not, it's not, it's a nuts thing to do. <laughs> and I'm sure many times over the years, I was like, when I was going to film, you'd be like, oh my goodness, thing, this thing is never going to end. <laughs> but um, why he, I think, I think it also has to be based on the kind of conversations and questions and how I was handling the actual filmmaking. I think that all demonstrates um 
the filmmaker's mindset and goals. Uh, I believe all of that continued to prove that I wasn't, I was letting him tell his story. Um, I was of course trying to figure something out and be there in the moments and, and capture all of that. But there's ways of leading and, asking and following whoever you are um, talking with on camera, which I think can bring out um, a more uh, objective, curious questioning, I guess, Mm -hmm. that allows someone to answer from or feel comfortable to answer. I don't know. I don't know what that is. Um, But he just trusted trusted I was going to make something that wasn't, um, that wasn't unbiased, that wasn't biased, that wasn't going to, that was just going to tell the story. And that's what has been the goal from the beginning. Yeah, certainly. I think it's that probably that level of authenticity, you know, where maybe perhaps because you already established that connection with him during your first film. And uh, it's certainly high praise, though, you know, I mean, for him to have given you that uh, that credit. And it, it, I think it appears true. You know, obviously I wasn't there during the production and everything, but I feel like the the film does give the, the government's perspective, uh, gives Cody's perspective. It, it didn't seem like there was too much ideological skew, thankfully. As a, you know, we, we already mentioned, we interviewed Cody last year. And um, during that interview, we asked him if he knew of any real world applications of 3D printed guns used to deter authoritarianism or uh, fight back in some type of like guerrilla proxy conflict or something like that. And his answer was a bit surprising. He said that he had mostly just seen them used for uh, image making, for like optics. Your film to a degree kind of highlights that much of, you know, what the government does is purely performative and theatrical. It seems like illusion, you know, to, to keep us obedient and in line. Its mechanisms, obviously, to regulate code and information exchange is antiquated and impotent. In the beginning of the the documentary, Cody is showing off the Liberator, and he says to the camera, to a certain level, this is all theater. I was just wondering Mm -hmm. if you kind of understood what he meant by that. Yes. um, I I think it makes him uh, laugh, but I I always called uh, what he was doing was performance art. Um, Interesting. Because at the beginning, definitely it was like an art project in which uh, he knew the power of the symbolic, right? How I take that is he's definitely leaning into Baudrillard's idea of like simulacrum and and, uh, everything's a stage, everything's a spectacle. Um, And it's mentioned a couple times during the film um, how, you know, sometimes the government uses it. And sometimes we use it too, is kind of a quote. Um, Because in order to mainstream something, in order to rile people up, in order to get something that has emphasis or propaganda or anything, right? You have to, there has to be a set stage. There has to be a fear. There has to be a a, a level of rebellion that that, uh, usurps a certain power structure, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at that time, the, which is the, the shocking thing is so many people still think Cody gave physical guns. Um, this is really a story about code 
that is a second amendment, but it's a first amendment story. Um, The actual liberator, this, you know, adorable little plastic gun, um, it existed in the theatrical realm. It existed to create mania to in a place where no one knew it could exist. So as a keen marketer and uh, a, a man gifted with word, this was a perfect demonstration of like how a symbol could become a stage in which the ideas of specifically the second amendment have to be rethought. And many times in Cody's life and creation um, of like the ghost gunner of the zero, it's about um, piercing an idea of ability and giving you a new form. So all those things are quite theatrical in the end. So I think that's what he's getting at. Yeah, that, that was an excellent answer. And I think that's mm-hmm. kind of what I was thinking as well. You, you probably flushed it out a little bit more than I was able to articulate. Cody's interview when he was getting grilled by, uh, I forgot what mainstream silly <laughs> show it was, 60 Minutes or CBS. Oh, it was so beautiful, CNN. Oh my God, it was amazing. I, I yelled out loud and was laughing and uh, my daughter came in the room and she's like, Daddy, what are you laughing at? I'm like, oh God, he just I, owned this interviewer <laughs> and it was awesome. I, I highly encourage you to go and watch the entire thing. I, I can't remember, I think it's like 25 minutes. But when that came out, I was like, oh, I like grabbed it immediately because the most amazing part of that is that they didn't cut it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is. That is. I was I was interviewed by uh, NBC on a censorship thing like 2016, and it was completely recut and edited to make us me and look like complete loons. You know, I mean, and it it was, and it was lies. They lied about it. They, they, but yeah, it was amazing that they actually ran with that interview and like he left them silent. It was just so good. And and you hear him almost say something, the interviewer, and then he pulls back. Like you hear him attempt to articulate a response. Like it's there. It, it blew my mind the first time I saw it. So I love that people never saw that, have seen that interview because it makes that little montage a lot of fun. Yes, I agree. Sure. <laughs> um, I, back to the uh, the the what Jason had said earlier, where he kind of you know he kind of got the hint that that there could have been a potential honeypot because we were you know we didn't know what was going on and weren't that attached to it. Um, on that same kind of vein, there the Jay Stark death, mm. right when he, when he was found dead at twenty eight of a, an alleged heart attack. Um, that one, <laughs> you know, that one seems a lot more fishy, right? He was he was making enemies. He he uh, he was a, a, an enemy of the state for sure for 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 showing people how to get all these parts and in Europe where guns are largely completely outlawed. Um, I was just curious, like it, you you guys interviewed him for um, for some of the scenes in in the documentary. What, what was that like? And then what are your views on what may have happened to him? Because this is, I mean, yeah, Cody's thing's one, but Jay Stark is a completely different one being found dead in his car at 28 of a heart attack. 
Yes. Oh, wait, oh and, and also, thank you for using my article and our article yeah. the project uh, for, in the documentary. You guys, uh, you, you guys, yeah, he showed one of our articles in there for the, about Jay Stark. Yeah, I jumped out of my seat. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Um, so a couple layers in there. Like, um, I actually never filmed Jay Stark. He, oh. he provided me with that footage. So the footage that you see of his eyes, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, he is another example of- Well, were uh, you in contact with him? Was he yes. actually sending you? Okay, yeah. I, yeah, I didn't yeah, mean so, that you, you guys went to Europe and filmed No, him. well, that is my one sad- That was my one sadness. I think it was the summer of 2020 when COVID was at its you know max force. Mm-hmm. Um, he invited me to come to Europe to meet him. And because of the insanity, um, I couldn't go. So that is my one sadness about this film. Somebody asked me, like, what is something that you didn't catch that you wish you had? It was that. Um, But um, from the very beginning, starting, I guess that was late 2018, when Deterrence Dispense started coming together, which was basically Jay Stark and Ivan and then AG Leaks and a few other people started grabbing and we all kind of assembled and I was, you know, very lovingly pulled into all their conversations. So I... I met all of them online very, very quickly. And uh, for some reason, Jay Stark um, trusted me. So he sent me that footage because there's no other footage of his eyes um, that you can find. Um, And we just constantly, we didn't constantly, but we we chatted a few times. Um, and then what you hear is him talking about his project at Parallelni Poli, which is a hackers congress in Prague, and then from a couple other podcasts that he did. Um, there was always, it's hard to kind of say when everyone was alerted to this, but there was conversation that would be suggested uh, to his peers um, in our like chats that he had a short life. Um, He would hint that he had a short life and that's why he had to get something done quickly. Um, Could that have been a heart defect? It is a high possibility. Um, I don't, I don't really know why they would want to kill him. I think, in those kind of cases, like uh, better to catch them and then make a um, make an example out of someone. At that point, especially that he was raided just a couple of days before. You yeah, know? he was raided and was they didn't so find much. anything. That's why he was released. He wasn't. He was free. You know, right. he died in his car. Like, if they wanted him and they were willing to kill him, then they would have just planted something. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think I think his heart actually probably gave out. I think Cody kind of uh, mentioned the same thing on our podcast that uh, he had known heart issues prior to the raid. Um, and of course, once again, you know, uh, when we put out that article, um, we didn't have that information. We were uh, seeking more information, but it seemed at that time uh, important article to put out just to kind of question the circumstances. Um, but I, I kind of also had a, a different question about that. Um, very much similar, though. Was there any communication or partnership between Jay Stark and Defense Distributed, or was it more just like an influential, uh, I don't know, influence from opposite sides of the world? Sure. Um, until then, there wasn't other real big players in the 3D gun space. 
there was really, it was Cody defense distributed. You had some other people doing little things here and there. Of course you had Foscat and the, but it was, it was still a very quiet community, if you will. Not so many people were willing to uh, put their names to it or take, you know, possible take all the losses that comes with working in this community. Right. But once he was, uh, once Cody got in trouble for in 2018, um, like as discussed in the film, like Jay Stark and Ivan were like, is this going to die? Is this going to be the end of this like era of 3d printing? And they, they took it on. But right before that they had started um, communicating with Cody because as you it's there's so much in the film but there's a moment where they're kind of laughing and chiding um defense distributed and defcad because they put out um ganky ar files so there's text messages that you see where there where where i believe it's ivan talking to cody and they're saying you know what's up with these like ar15 files and he's like fix them and they're like okay we are so they started chatting and that could have led to probably something, but instead, you know, other things happened. But right after that, they were propelled into the space in order to continue it. And these groups of people that that, that had found each other on gun forums, um, I believe it was a DEFCAD forum, came together and uh, started Terrence Dispensed. And that was definitely a huge part of why Jay Stark also created um, the FGC nine because they were suddenly like working towards a movement. Yeah. That FGC nine, that's, that was the whole, my conspiracy mind. Cause FGC nine is such a powerful, liberating gun. It, it's really effective. You know, it's, it's uh, it could be modified to, I think even Cody told us that people in Africa were actually using them to, to fight off like their my governments. Right. Yeah. My so, mark's still being used, I think. Yeah, well, the plans are out there. Yeah. <clears throat> made by mostly widely available parts on the internet, too, which made it kind of unique, right? So, like, it was easily accessible for most people in different parts of the world. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it seems like Jay Stark certainly has a place in this uh, 3D printing uh, hall of fame, I guess, if you will. 100%. Yeah, and I highly urge our audience to check out that article on the Free Thought Project. If you just go to the search bar at the top, type type in Jay Stark, it should come up. Or just do some research, research on him in general. He was certainly an inspirational figure. I do kind of have a, a, a bigger question here. It, it seemed like a, a deeper theme that was present throughout the entire film that was kind of subtly, subtly hammered home was this archaic <laughs> nature of government and its limited <laughs> abilities to kind of keep pace with technological advances that move faster than the gears of government. In one part of the film, Cody even mentions that the feds seem reluctant to give them any guidelines or judgment on how to proceed by doing so, because it would basically be an acknowledgement that they have no legitimate mechanisms uh, to place a harness on this technology. So, you know, regardless of its threats, you know, and fancy legalese uttered by these overpriced state attorneys, no one had an answer on how to limit the transfer of files in some cases even seemed uncomfortable and intimidated to do so so beyond the name of the film which you know obviously has its own influence of of the focus would it be accurate to say that this was also really what you're trying to convey with the theme of this documentary oh for sure it's a techno 
political adventure. <laughs> um, sure. It's, you know, polit- it's technology outrunning politics, which we see in the crypto space. Yeah. 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 Um, dark, you know, dark wallet, dark fi. Um, we see it in, oh, what is it? Um, tornado. Is it Tornado Cash that just got in really big trouble? All these systems that um, are being created, which there are no ways to actually stifle them or stop them, but you can take down the creators, correct? Right. Um, uh, Ross Albrecht. Ross Albrecht, exactly. So yeah, this film is very much about technology outrunning sclerotic political frameworks that have no way to catch up with uh, the speed at which the internet is allowing us to do things. Um, today's protest is the usage of creating beautiful systems. Yes, um, yes absolutely. Well, it, yeah, if that was the intention, I would say it was a, a beautifully done expose. And uh, yeah, certainly applaud you for that. Um, Cody, you know, was targeted not because of the, t- the file transfers, not for the ability to make these 3D printed guns. And it, obviously it's no secret that various guns can be made out of kits or even various parts that you could kind of cre- create crudely in a metal shop, you know. But in my observation, he was targeted just because he decided to challenge the authority of these tyrants and more or less disavow the holy religion of statism, which seems to be the greatest sin in our society. Uh, I think even at one point in the film, he said that, they want to put me in my place. They want me to know where the boundaries are. They want to set the rules. They want me to know that they set the rules. Um, so, I mean, yeah, after spending eight years with him, watching his legal entanglements and the, the evolution of this pretty expansive now 3D gun printing movement, um, do you believe this observation rings true that this was more or less just a, a plot for vengeance while demanding subservience? Absolutely. Um, and it continues. And I think that's the angle um, of all responses that don't have uh, a format yet. Um, yeah. yeah. So yes, and then through the years, you know, they they catch up, they uh, figure out. Like, there's so many. Like, I think we were mentioning off offline before we started. There's so many new regulations that states and the federal. Like, it's constant now. Um, so they're just, you know, it's, it's if they can't catch up techn- technologically, then they're just going to strangle um, creation in any other way possible. Like what New York wants to ban 3D printers. Like really, we actually got to that point. We were laughing about that two years ago. Well, you know, right. chuckling, but banning a 3D printer, like, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's like yep. banning um, a hammer and nails, or <laughs> or like a, a saw, Seriously. or anything like yeah. that. It's it's a uh, it's asinine. But um, I think I think the American mentality is so unique now. I, I just had a Q and A, um, and I zoomed in with a group of people in the UK, and in one of the responses, um, the person suggested that they would be available to the idea of. Uh, taking away knives if they weren't so important in the kitchen. Good Lord. And, (laughs) and it was such, it was uh, entangled in this larger reaction to the film that I, which I was not expect, I honestly was not uh, 
expecting, I was expecting to talk about the film in general terms that I, I like wrote it down afterwards because I was like, I cannot believe somebody actually said that in a, uh, a stern and, and serious fashion. Um, I think it's, I think, uh, American mentality, we can make fun of a lot of it and we're not perfect in any form or function, but we haven't lost that, like, uh, the gra- well, not all of us, but there's a large portion of us that hasn't lost the grasp of um, real human right versus like fake human right, um, sure. and it's wild. Yeah, we our ideas and um, of of what a right is these days in this country is uh, certainly skewed and distorted. And yeah. <laughs> so, so I have uh, like a, a follow up question. We like to kind of um, have. The, our guests offer solutions towards the end of the podcast. Mm-hmm. And I guess that, um, you know, this entire film itself is a solution. You, we've talked about why you, you know, why you wanted to make it, what happened during the making of it. But I guess what I want to ask you now is like, how do you see the, this conversation morphing in the aftermath of this documentary's release? Where would you like to see this go? What do you think a possible solution is to the problem that we've been discussing of government intrusion and, and attack on, the right to the most fundamental right of of all of life is the right to protect yourself. I think we're just gonna if we're specifically talking about guns, we're just caught in this great irony that every time a new law passes, individuals that are interested in guns just flock to the internet and just buy everything they can that they know won't exist in the future. And so, like in some ways, we're just creating individuals with large caches and building like. Uh, deposits, right? Or that's the correct word. Um, I I don't know if I, I think actually working within this 3D space of all these rules just continue um, adding up and adding on, I think it's going to be harder and harder. But at the same time, you can't stop the internet, <laughs> like as discussed in the film, like, and the internet is what is on the internet is only information, right? So that's going to have this like this fake term of oh, people can't have these things. Um, and yet, when when you go into someone's quote unquote house or uh, data storage, I think more and more people are actually going to literally have these things, at least in the United States. Sure. Yeah, I mean, they, they can't stop the signal. And uh, I think we even said this in our last podcast, but, you know, Ron Paul has always said that no army could stop an idea whose time has come, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, the idea that they could put the brakes on, slow down the free flow of information exchange is, is certainly delusional, you know, and unfortunately, as you mentioned, you know, it, in one of your responses there, we're in this place where they don't know what else to do other than try to, you know, enforce some type of violent law or, you know, threat of, uh, you know, coercion of some type, but they, they don't really have any way to, to thwart this, to stop any of this technology. So it's certainly a very interesting time. Mm-hmm. I must say, Jessica, the first thing that struck me about the film was its tone and its vibe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I feel like we're aesthetically aligned because for me it was, it was the full package. Like the music was great. It was on point. Uh, the editing was captivating. The pace moved well. Uh, I wasn't very happy when it ended. I, I certainly could have watched six more seasons of this show. <laughs> I have the footage for it. No, <laughs> <laughs> the open source um, 
undertones and theme of the whole documentary was even embedded in the documentary itself as all the music was creative commons. I noticed that at the end, I was like, Holy shit, this is like this from, from start to finish, you know, it's, it was the whole thing. Yeah. Well, I could not get any, any rights to any music for any part of this film except um, free music archive. And then I was able to finally find a handful of artists for which wanted uh, monetary compensation that did say yes. But uh, the majority of reaching out to artists was repetitively a no, just because of the topic. This was, this film is heavily music centered. We edited to the music, which we found uh, by doing hours and hours and hours of uh, plundering free music archive. Did a great job of it. (laughs) Yeah, it translated perfectly. And I mentioned already in the the Malice interview uh, that you had said that the streaming companies wouldn't host the documentary because the imagery on the artwork for the poster. Uh, (laughs) Feel free to talk about that. But I was wondering if the film had been received by both any uh, mainstream establishment or independent critics and what their responses have been. Um, so with the posters, like I had, to, uh, this is self-distribution. So, um, going through an aggregator, which basically pitches to like iTunes and Google and such. Um, and they were kind of like the in-between man saying, we will not do this. We will not send it to them because we know they will say no. Um, this is the poster with the X-ray of the gun because there's a, there's a line of like gratuitous violence or danger or something like that. So I had to create a second poster, which, you know what, in the end, I love that poster too, but it's like these small annoyances. Um, the battle for this film is to get it on the mainstream. This is like, you know, filmmaker guerrilla warfare of trying to get it out there. Um, streamings will not have it. I mean, hey, anyone from the Daily Wire listening, hit me up. You guys can have this film. Um, Because I think uh, the audience has been nowhere tapped into. And this is the the work I am doing right now. And um, shows like yours, like, thank you so much for having me. Um, Because it's really indie. It's really independent. But I, I, I don't think, and the surprising part of this film, it's not just a gun film. I think this film and which which showed in when we did the Q&A in New York, like the quote unquote normies loved it. Interesting. So people want these stories. People are sick of the cut and paste Netflix nine episodic series. Um so I think it's totally possible. It just needs, you know, more individuals with balls. Yeah, well, well said. And um, it makes sense. It feels like there's a relatively minimal mainstream presence when it comes to this topic. And uh, obviously, we know why, you know, they don't want to touch it with a 10 foot pole, they don't want to give people uh, any ideas. And plus, it's just seems so dangerous to these people who just don't know any better, you know, so uh, maybe that's the element that that drop draws people in and maybe got those normies in the audience a little bit more excited than uh, watching the the average Netflix (laughs) nine episode, six episode show. All right, free thinkers, this episode is nearing the end. We wanted to take this time to remind you, if you found value in this conversation, please consider hitting that like button and subscribing to the Free Thought Project podcast on your preferred platform of choice. 
It's an easy, no-cost way to support us and ensure you never miss an episode. Also, the Freethought Project operates primarily on the generosity of our listeners. If you believe in our mission and support our cause, please consider donating or subscribing by going to the membership tab at the top of our website. Your contributions ensure we are able to continue our important work having these important conversations, and your donations help us do just that. Lastly, if you're part of an organization or own a business that aligns with our mission and values, we are currently inviting sponsorships for our podcast. This is a fantastic opportunity to promote your product or make your brand visible to our engaged audience while supporting meaningful discourse. Thank you for your support, Freethinkers, and as always, thank you for listening. We are uh, close to the end of the show here, guys. And uh, I did want to mention, you could find the Death Athletic documentary on Amazon, Google, Apple TV. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's preferred if you buy it directly from Jessica. And that could be found at encode.vhx.tv. Um, Jessica, I also know that you're on uh, Twitter as Jessica Solche, uh, as uh, Death Athletic. Um, so definitely follow those guys, but what else would you like to plug today and where can people follow you? And, um, certainly anything else that I miss that you want to plug? Sure. I mean, the, definitely the easiest way go to deathathletic.com. It has all the links, um, and anything coming up, screenings, uh, press, anything coming up is going to be, I'll tweet about it. Jessica at Jessica Solche on Twitter. Um, yes, you know, Buy direct, always best. I don't have to cut with streaming. And if you watch and you like the film, you know, please talk about it. Tell me about it. You know, if you want to do a screening, reach out. I'll, you know, I'm I'm here for the film to get this out there. So I am up for all ideas and all people. <laughs> Jessica, your documentary, in my humble opinion, is exactly what the doctor ordered in, in this time in history. And um it's exactly what we need to inspire us to interject into the equation, not only the importance of our natural rights, but a reminder that authority is inherently fallible and, and largely incompetent. So um, the movie, the documentary was nothing short of brilliant. I highly recommend our audience watch it, buy it, share it. And uh, Jessica, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I had a great time. Thank you.